something like that. Donnie, right? We're good? Okay. So everybody else is in here. But before Pastor Jeremy comes, and how many of you enjoying the ministry of our teaching pastor, Pastor Jeremy? Amen? Amen. But before he comes, Brother Joey's coming with a timely 10 and going to share the word with us. I'm excited and looking forward to what God's going to say. Amen. God bless you. Small group tonight. A little less nervous, less people. <laughs> but, man, I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of a church that's all about evangelizing and, and reaching the local community. That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. And uh, I'm going to say out publicly I'm planning on being a part of that, Bishop. So if you don't see me there, call me. But, uh, yeah, I'm so blessed to share uh, what God has put on my heart. So with that, uh, we'll open to our Bibles, uh, and I'll direct your attention to Matthew chapter 14. And I'm going to start in verse 13, and I'm going to go through 21. And it reads, 13, oh, I better get on the right page, 13, 14, 13 through 21. All right. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by a boat to a desert, a deserted place by himself. But when the multitude heard it, they followed him on foot from the city. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away, and they may go into a village and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and he took up five loaves and the two fish, and, he, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke, and he gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they, are, so they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so from this, I titled my message, Everlasting Bread. And let's all pray together. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving us. God, life's challenging, and I couldn't imagine not doing it without you. I just thank you for all that you're doing, for you are the author and finisher of our faith. God, we thank you again for all that you do. In Jesus' name. So here in the Bible, we see God performing the miraculous. This incident of God feeding the 5,000 occurs four times throughout the gospel, three times. Uh, so, uh, so it could be found in Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6. In Luke, it tells of the place called Bethsaida, located on the northern shore of Galilee. And it was a desolate, desolate place, the Bible says. And, and that's recorded that it was a desolate place also in Mark, Luke. And this caught my attention. This word desolate translates ermos, which means uncultivated, unpopulated place. A desolate, deserted area, figuratively a barren, solitary place that provides needed quiet. Uh, freedom from disturbance. Uh, in the strict sense, ermos expresses a lack of population, not merely uh, a vegetation, but this root, Eremos, does not suggest absolute barrenness, but it is the perfect territory 
affording free range for shepherds in their flocks. Ironically, it also means that God richly grants his present and provision for those seeking him. Right? The limitless Lord shows himself strong in the limiting, difficult scenes of life. Jesus, he had needed some quiet time. He was informed earlier that his cousin John was beheaded. It says at the beginning of verse 13, when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desolate place. But then the people, they followed him, and they needed his presence. They were seeking him, and in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, he was moved with compassion, it says, towards them, because they were, not, they were as sheep, not having a shepherd, and, being, and he began to teach them many things. So God had shown me something about this word, though how it was able to fulfill three different definitions absolutely perfectly. So now that'll preach, huh? <laughs> All it takes is one word from God. So I find it amazing that God may be dealing with someone's loss, but yet he's able to be moved with compassion for others and heal their sick as well. Now, when it was evening, the disciples, they came to him saying, this is a desolate place and it's getting late. If only they knew what they were saying to him. This is an eremost place, right? A place where God richly grants his present and his provision for those seeking him. And it's a place where a shepherd would take his flock to freely feed. And they said, it's getting late. We're tired. And they wanted people to go away and figure out their own source of food. But Jesus had told them, you give them some food. In all the accounts, he said, you give them food. And I just want to tell our church that uh, it's a desolate place out there in the world, right? By English definition, a place that's trying to hold God back, silence him, and remove him in everything uh, in society. So that may get tiring, but God's asking and telling us to feed them. So Galatians 6, 9 uh, tells us, Let us not grow weary while in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. He said, feed them. But the disciple said, all we have is five loaves and a bread, five loaves of bread and two fish. Uh, before this, Jesus had made it very evident that he was more than able to perform the miraculous, but yet they thought that they had to send them off in search of their own food. And Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not onto your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. They weren't acknowledging him for what he was able to do. They were trusting on their own understanding by sending them off. And little did they know. So they had missed it. Jesus was all they had needed at that last hour of the day. And what Jesus was originally given seemed like an insignificant amount. They said, all we have, but we need to know that in his hands is way more than enough we may often think that our contribution to Jesus is to little of no use. I've, I've been there before. And uh, if we just put it in his hands, he can multiply whatever we give him, whether it's our talent, our time, our treasures. It was said that he fed 5,000 plus women and children. And that could have been anywhere between seven to 10,000 people they fed. Crazy thing is, is that it all came from a lad. The Bible says a lad, a young man willing to give up his meal for the evening. Think about that. All it takes is one act of obedience, one big God for thousands to be filled. The Bible says they ate every one of them and they were full. And the disciples thought that this was insignificant. 
So shortly after this miracle, in John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And if I could just leave you with one thing, God is ready to fill and satisfy souls with everlasting bread, and he's asking us to feed them. We need to realize that this world needs Jesus, and we need to know he's more than able to satisfy them. Be blessed in Jesus' name. What a good word. And you know, it's a good word not because it came from Joey, but because the word is good. And it's, to me, that's always an encouraging thing because the word of God stands on its own and it's not dependent on his personality or my personality or his intelligence or my intelligence, but it is God's word that was manifest flesh and lived among us. So we, it is always good no matter whose lips it comes from. Um, and this will tie well into tonight. We're going to talk, we're going to continue our series on maturity. Last week we talked a little bit about um, what is biblical maturity and why it's important and those kind of things. And tonight is going to be a little bit more application-based. And we're going to talk about a couple specific traits, if you will, um, of what it means to be mature. And somewhere in the midst of this, I have a story I want to tell. I don't know quite yet where it's going to fit most. I've been thinking about it for a little bit. And um, after listening to Joey speak, I definitely believe it is what God wants me to insert somewhere along here. And it'll make sense in a minute. Turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. We're going to be reading in verse 13 and 14. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. And it reads like this. Brethren... I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is a passage I have no doubt most of us have heard numerous times. Um, It's something that gets taught a lot, as well it should, but I want to bring your attention to one specific word here in relation to maturity. In verse 14, it says that he pressed toward the mark. What does that mean, the mark? The word that is used there literally translates to mean the completion of the race, the fulfillment of maturity. And Paul is saying in this passage that he doesn't have it all figured out yet, that he's still a human, that he still makes mistakes, and he hasn't figured out how to be perfectly like Christ, but that he is pressing so that at some point he will reach the mark whenever he sees Jesus. So the mark here is the fulfillment of God's character and maturity. And though we in our flesh cannot be perfect like Christ, we can be perfecting growing in Christ and in maturity to be more and more like him day by day. Last week, we began our our discussion of maturity in the book of Colossians, and I'm going to read two of the verses that we covered last week. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 and 28, it says, Whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Verse 28 whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. 
If you'll recall from last week, the word that's used there for perfect is also a reference to maturity. The word literally means to be complete in all its parts, to be full-grown, or specifically completeness of Christian character. Now, the reason why that, that passage jumps out to me is that what Paul defines as his purpose, what Paul defines the role and the purpose of a minister of the gospel is to help others to be more mature in their walk, which by default means to be more like Christ and less like the world. There is a, a, a thought sometimes that the sole purpose of ministry is to get people to the baptismal tank and to get them filled with the Holy Ghost, and that is the completion, the totality of, of, of what the job of a minister is. And I will tell you that is absolutely not the case. Salvation is the beginning point. It's not less important or more important. It's needed. We do need to preach the truth, the whole truth. But we cannot forsake the parts that comes after salvation, which is the maturing of every believer to grow in a reflection of God's character. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see Paul talking here to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 4, verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and some teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The purpose of ministry, that is, uh, is the maturing of the saints. And this passage gets talked a lot about how that God gave gifts to the church, which he did. And this is one of the things that's mentioned, that he gives the church teachers and preachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles for the purpose of building up the church. But that is not the complete role of the church. The role that any individual who stands behind this pulpit and talks out to the congregation is incapable of fulfilling the fullness of ministry on their own. This process here is for the purpose of equipping out there to reach the world out there. Church is not defined as the time that we get together and celebrate God. We do do that. That is important. We should not forsake the assembling together of those of like precious faith. But this is the preparation place. This is the place where we get in touch with God and, and make the decision to grow and mature in our own faith so that we can fulfill the ministry that we all have. Because all spirit-filled believers... All, in big fat capital letters, all spirit-filled believers are called to reach for the lost. All spirit-filled believers are called to be a city on a hill. But what does that have to do specifically with maturity? Well, we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 5. We referenced it a little bit last week, but I want to read chapter 5, verse 12 of Hebrews. It says, for when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, 
and not of strong meat. Verse 13, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, I need to bring out three real quick things right here. First is, what the writer here is, is saying in this passage is not to denigrate or to diminish babes in Christ that first enter into the kingdom. This is not to look at anyone who walks through the door for the very first time and then scold them because they haven't become mature. What is being taught here is that for those who have graced the seat for year after year, but have not grown in such a way to be able to use the word of God to complete their calling, is stuck in the infancy phase of their Christian walk with God. And the reason why that matters is because your salvation is interlinked with your purpose. God is the one who died for us, no doubt. He is the one who purchased our salvation, no doubt. We couldn't do it on our own. But scripture tells us that we are saved unto good works. Meaning that when salvation becomes a part of your life, there then becomes an expectation that you grow and mature in Christ because you see the need for others to have that same salvation. So this process here we're talking about is not against anyone who's new, but it is a reminder for those of us who have been walking with Christ for years that there is something more than church on Sunday morning. There's something more than the fellowship we have with our best friends who have been in church for 30 years. Our walk with God should be a reflection of what Christ taught but the other part here is how we go about doing this. And I know I mentioned it last week, but I think it's worth, worth repeating. That the way that you become mature, the way that you grow in the word, is that you exercise the word in your life. Meaning that it cannot be just hearers, but you must be doers of the word. That means you take the principles that are taught within scripture and you work daily to apply them to your life so that you become more like him. Maturity is a process and not a destination. Maturity is a process and not a destination. Now, we know that when we have finished this earthly life, when we go on to be with Christ, yes, at that moment we will take off corruptible and put on the incorruptible that we would be like him. 1 John 3 and 2 says that we don't know yet what we shall be, but when we see him, we will know because we will be like him. But we're not there yet. And until that point comes, all of us has to continue day by day growing in Christ. There will be some things in your life that you get super easy, that you grow and mature in, that maybe I don't. And likewise, there will be areas of my life that, that I'm hopefully matured in and grown in that maybe you aren't. And that's okay because it's not a competition. The reason that the Bible talks about iron sharpening with iron is, is I have strengths you may not, and you have strengths I may not. And that the purpose of fellowship is to help one another in the areas where we're weak. 
so that we can become more like him. Because church is not a competition. It is an eternal destination that we cannot forsake letting this world know about. So let's briefly go over a couple of marks of a mature Christian. So the title is simply just Marks of a Mature Believer or Christian. Either way you want to call it there. Number one. Now, before I say this, let me me maybe qualify just a little bit here. Because I said that maturing is a process, not a destination. You may not fit either of the two categories that I'm going to mention here perfectly, and that's okay. But what you should do is see where you need to be and where you are and help yourself get to where you need to be. So, for example, the first mark of a mature Christian is immature Christians view their personal accomplishments and their pedigree as the mark of their righteousness. But mature Christians recognize that only by putting on Christ can we obtain righteousness. Let me say that again. Immature Christians view their personal accomplishments and their own pedigree as the mark of their righteousness. But a mature Christian recognizes that it's only by putting on Christ that we obtain righteousness. Now, we're going to look in Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to kind of skip through a little bit for the sake of time, but let me give you a quick backstory and why this, this, this chapter here fits so well. In Philippians, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and you have to kind of understand that, that the church there is in a unique position for many of the other churches that Paul writes to. Because in 42 BC, Rome came in and made Philippi a colony of Rome. And here's why that matters. In much of the Roman kingdom or the Roman empire, you had Roman citizens and everyone else. So you may have belonged to the empire, but you weren't a Roman, which meant you were at best a second-class citizen. Those who were actual Roman citizens got rights and privileges above and beyond anyone else who was in the empire. They were treated better. They had more Um, if you will, could get away with doing more things than someone who wasn't an actual citizen. So in 42 BC, when Rome came and officially designated, and it was after a significant battle, but it designated Philippi as a colony, it meant that the residents also became Roman citizens, which means that the church at Philippi, by the world standard, had it way better than all of the other churches because they had privileges and perks and they were Roman citizens. They were citizens of the largest empire known to man at that point in history. So you can understand why the residents within this place may be susceptible to a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance, because the world put on them a title of, yeah, you're better than everybody else because you are a Roman citizen. With that backdrop, now when we read through chapter 3, it's going to take on a very different meaning than than maybe you've read it before. Listen to what it says, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, 
Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Why did he even need to say that? Why? That's kind of a random thing to start off this chapter here. But it makes perfect sense because just like the Jews of the old had done for a long time, now we see here again these Jews and outside forces telling these Christians that they had to conform to the Old Testament law and traditions of man instead of just adhering to what they were told through Christ. They told these believers, yeah, 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 I know you say you're a Christian, but if you don't get circumcised, you're going to go to hell. And so Paul's having to come in and fight against this arrogance, this elitism that says that they are, are better than anyone else. And he's saying, listen, we do not trust in the circumcision of flesh, but only in the circumcision of the heart. There is no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Okay, what he's about to say here is, at least to me, uh, pretty awesome. What he's doing is, is he's setting this up. He's saying, okay, there are people out here telling you that you have to be circumcised of the flesh or you don't get to be a part of the cool kids club and go to heaven. You're not going to make it. You have to follow all the customs that they deem important. And if you don't do that, you're not going to make it. So when Paul comes to talk to this church, when he is writing to them to tell them all about this, he kind of lays out a little bit of foundation here to say, look, if anyone should have the ability based on human merit to come in and tell you what to do, it's me. Because listen to what he says. He says that, Verse 5, that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, he was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church, touching the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. He was someone of status. And interestingly, he was also a Roman citizen. Paul had every perk that man thought was important. And yet he says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering be made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead... Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Pause there for a moment, because King James, man, it gets a little weird in the way that some of the words are arranged, and it's, what on earth is he talking about? And this is all he's saying. All he's saying is this. 
all those things, all those, those, those titles that I had before meant nothing. The, the, the times that I thought I was doing the work of God because I was a Pharisee and I was persecuting this church and I was doing all of those things, that meant nothing. It did not count toward righteousness. It did not advance the kingdom of God. It did nothing for him on a spiritual level. Instead, he realized that in Christ, he could apprehend, meaning he could obtain this, this salvation, but he's very clear to point out that he did not obtain it in his own righteousness or works, but that he recognized through Christ's righteousness he might apprehend this salvation, this eternal life. And because of that, he, he recognized that he hadn't got there yet. And now we get to verse 14, which we opened with. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. I love these two verses because he says here that he's pressing toward that mark, right? It's a process. He hasn't quite got there, that mark being the full completion of God's character, but that he's working toward that goal. That's the purpose of his, his ministry, of his life, is to be more and more like him. And this is what he says here. He says, if for some reason there is something that I am missing in my life, and by extension he's saying to the church, if you do this, if you press toward the mark of God, if you take the effort to try day after day to become more like Christ, here's the great news. In the areas that you are lacking, God will bring it to your attention so that you can then change it. You see, if we don't know what we're lacking in, how can we change it? If we don't know what we're missing in our character to become more like God, how can we fix it? But Paul is saying here, listen, just press. Just go day after day after day. It doesn't matter how many times you messed up. It doesn't matter how bad you feel because you sinned again. You just keep pressing. And if you will do that part of the bargain, God is faithful to show you the things you need to change. And thus why God gave the church teachers, preachers, apostles, evangelists, prophets. He gave them as a gift to those who are pressing to be more like him. To help you and I find the blind spots in our own walk so that we might be more like him. All right, let's move on now to the second mark of a mature Christian. And obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. We could be up here for weeks going through all the marks of a mature Christian. So I'm just giving you a couple that, that I, I thought was worth mentioning tonight. Number two, immature Christians seek a crown, but mature Christians seek a cross. Immature Christians seek a crown, but mature Christians seek a cross. Mark chapter 10, verse 31 starts by saying, But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. 
And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now, when I read those few verses, this doesn't seem like a very positive picture, right? This isn't something that most people would idolize, like, ooh, that's what I want to do. To be mocked, and to be crucified, and to be scourged, and to have all of these things happen to me. And so Christ is telling this to his disciples that they would help to understand that what he is about to go through is for their benefit. He is going to undertake something that no other man or woman could go through. No other person could willingly lay down a life with no sin for the sole purpose of bringing salvation to a sinful world. In this moment, this should have been a, a, a somber moment of, of reflection by the disciples to say, Man, we don't want to lose you, Jesus. We don't, we don't want to be separated from you, Jesus. But listen to what actually happens. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Look, I know you're going to go get crucified and beaten and all that stuff, but we also want you to do something for us. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And I, to me, like if I, if I was just standing there listening to this, I wouldn't even know what to say. Jesus literally just told them that he was going to be crucified, which they would have known is the most gruesome death that the Roman Empire dished out on people, that he was going to suffer all of this for their sake. And then for the audacity of two of these disciples to come up to him and say, yeah, yeah, that's good, but can you also do something for us? We want to be at your right and left hand. We want to be the top dogs when you, when you get into your glory. And so Jesus asked them, and I'm telling you, the question he asked was rhetorical because he already knew the answer. He asked them, oh, can, can, you, can you be baptized the way that I'm going to be baptized? Can you, can you sacrifice the way that I'm going to sacrifice? And in their arrogance, they say yes. And I, I can't help but imagining my teenage daughter rolling her eyes like, sure, like any person who heard this should have known, like, how arrogant. The truth is, though, we, we do the same thing sometimes. We want God to bless us individually with a title, a position, a money, a job, any of these other earthly things, and that becomes sometimes the thing that we seek after and we work toward is this temporary earthly bless, blessing and yet God is saying, oh, okay, okay, you want all of that stuff there. I got it. Let me ask you, are you able to provide it on your own? 
Well, unfortunately, there are some who say yes. And then he might say, well, okay, great. Have you been faithful at all times? Have you given with a cheerful heart at all times? Have you obeyed the word at all times? And if you said yes to any of those, you are probably wrong. And that's not an indictment against you individually, but just that we are all human. I would love to say that every single time I gave to the church that I was just overjoyed, happy, doing cartwheels. But I'm human. Sometimes I look at the bank account and I'm like, do I really want to do this? Thankfully, I do. Partially because I've got a good help me who makes it happen anyway. But the point is, is that here we find two of the disciples, those following after Christ. And yet after all the things they saw and witnessed and know that he had told them time and again he was about to suffer, their primary concern was a crown. Their primary concern was a blessing, was position. And yet Christ is saying, no, you need to be seeking the cross. The reason I called you as a disciple was not that you would have a crown and a life of luxury, but that you would understand that mankind needs what only I can give. And the only way they will receive what I give is if I sacrifice first, and then you sacrifice next. That you carry the cross that was first carried by Christ. So I challenge you, if you want to know where you're at in the maturity scale, so to speak, What is your motivation in everything you do in the church and for God? And it's a process. Trust me, I've had my own times of saying, well, that's unfair. Why didn't they recognize me? Why didn't they, you know, say something special about me? Just being honest, I've had those times. My love language is words of affirmation. I know it. Sometimes I feel like I have to hear somebody say it out loud for it to be true. But it comes from a place of immaturity. It comes from a place of of seeking uh, completeness in flesh and not in the spirit. Because in the spirit, I understand that all of this is temporary and it's going to be gone in a flash. But eternity is forever. And therefore, far above anything that I can get here, The mature believer should always be carrying the cross because other people need it. Number three, immature Christians see other success as a threat to their status. But mature Christians seek unity with all believers. Now, this word unity does not mean the same. It does not mean that I have to agree with every single thing that you do or teach. It doesn't mean that I have to like how you deliver certain things or how you say things because maybe your personality and my personality clash at times. And maybe the way that you say it was meant in the best of circumstances, but the way I receive it is a little different. So when I say that mature believers seek unity I'm not saying that that you seek the sameness. But what I'm saying is, is that we remember at the fundamental level, we all serve the same God 
And we should all be working toward the same goal. I don't have to like every idea you come up with. And you certainly don't have to like the ideas that I come up with. But what we do have to do is be willing to work with one another in unity and love to bring the message of Christ to the world. Because the moment that we believe that this message is solely dependent on me, then we've completely missed the mark. That's what gets people in trouble. And, and I'm always very careful. When I, when, I, when I write sermons, many, many times there are specific examples that flash in my mind, specific names, um, events, uh, historical things, all of those things. They pass through my mind, right? I'm human. I'm writing this. I'm like, ooh, yeah, I want to say that for whoever. But that's not mature either. Because the truth is that every one of us will fail at times and will find ourselves in moments of weakness being jealous or angry or hurt or thinking, why did they get to be promoted and I didn't? Or why? those kind of things are human. And, and, and though I'm telling you that we need to learn to grow past them, what I'm also saying is that maturity is a process and you will likely never get to the point while you're walking on this earth where you won't have emotions that you have to overcome and to get into check so that you don't go off that end of, of being jealous or, or bitter or disgruntled or whatever the emotion is. But maturity is the process that in all things, I try to bring it back into alignment with the word of God. You know, when, when, Bible, when the Bible talks about meditating on the word, meditating on the word is simply this. Before I'm going to take a big action, before I'm going to confront someone to tell them maybe something that I disagree with or something that I think they fell short on, or even if it's just something that we both are kind of button heads, meditating on the word means before I open my mouth, and say a single word to another person, I think, okay, what does God's word tell me and how I should approach this situation? First, let me examine myself. Is there things that I did wrong that I need to get kind of fixed for myself before I go and point the finger at other people? So meditating on the word doesn't mean you sit in a dark room and just like, hum and think about the word of God. It means that as you go day by day in all of your walk, that you are processing your actions, your thoughts, your feelings even through the word of God and trying the best that you can to bring those feelings into conformity with the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you, now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest 
any should say that I have baptized in my own name. We as humans have a very natural tendency to want to compare ourselves. It's human nature. Sin nature, but that's part of the sinful flesh that we still wear. It is not expected that you would, from this moment forward, never have those feelings of wanting to compete with someone else, to, to be better than someone else. But what is expected is that through maturity and a life of prayer and a life of understanding and meditating on the word, that we could then take that feeling, that emotion that we have, and say, okay, what does the word say about this? Right, they're my brother and my sister, and we all are a part of the same kingdom, and that we are all on equal footing, and that no one will be above another except for Christ himself. That mindset easily said, sometimes harder to live out. Because in our moments of weakness, sometimes we don't even realize that hurts from our past are one of the motivating factors to cause us to look at someone else in envy or disgust or whatever the emotion that pops up is. Sometimes it has nothing even to do with the other person at all. But it comes from a place of insecurity sometimes. In my own life, a demon that I've had to fight many times, and Sister Powell's kind of talked about this to some degree in her own story, that when I was young, when I was a kid, my mom's boyfriend of basically my entire life would say stupid things like, you're dumb, you'll never graduate high school. Or, you should stop playing music, you're not good at it. Or at 14, when I finally started going to church, say things like, you know that's all hype, that's all fake. I don't know why you go there. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. And as an adult, I can look at that and say, yeah, that's dumb. That, none of that makes any logical sense. But as a seven-year-old kid, that gets stuck right here. And what happens if we are not careful in staying in a mindset of, of, of looking through the word? I look at someone else getting moved into a position while I have to sit here. And I can become angry at that person when in truth, it, it's not them. It's those feelings of inadequacy and that, that I'm not good enough. But maybe they were right. Maybe I'm not quite good enough and that's why I just get passed over. And I want to tell you, as we all stand, that God knows your heart. That doesn't just mean he knows the wickedness, but he also knows the hurt. God knows the moments where you stood alone in the mirror and questioned, am I really worthy to be in the kingdom of God? Am I, am I really smart enough to, to be a witness and to minister to other people? God knows those things too. So my challenge for you is this. When you look back on these topics of maturity, Instead of looking at it and saying, well, yep, I guess I'm the immature one. That's not the purpose. The purpose in understanding this is so that God can help you realize the areas you're short in to grow to become more like him. But above all else, we have to have a relationship of trust in God. A trust 
that he doesn't make mistakes, that his promises will come to pass, that no matter how many times we tell ourselves hurtful things and how many times we even in ourselves believe lies of others, that Christ is faithful to stand there day after day, knocking on that door saying, just let me back in. I want to fix this. Will you just open the door? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, oh God, that your word is not just letters on a page, but that it is the power and the bread of life that lives within us, that cast out the darkness and cast out the negative things that this world would say against us. That your word, oh God, when we meditate on it, we understand the sacrifice that you gave for us. That your love past all time, all space, that you knew me, where I would be standing on this day, in this moment, in this hour, and you said, I see you, and I love you, and I'm rooting for you. Church, I pray God would bring a word of encouragement, a word of truth to this church, God wants revival, but before we can step fully into the role of revival, we must know that God is for us, that he's not against us, and that when we must make a mistake, we just keep pressing. Until the day that we come in the full stature of the measure of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.